Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And I'm Jordan McGillis of IER as well. Joining us today to discuss the blackouts in California is Travis Fisher, the president and CEO of the Electricity Consumers Resource Council, which is a national association representing large industrial consumers of electricity. Prior to joining Elcon, Travis worked for two years at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and he also worked on the presidential transition teams at FERC and the DOE. While he was at the DOE, Fisher led the department's efforts on the staff report to the Secretary of, on Electricity Markets and Reliability. And before becoming involved with the transition, Travis was an economist here at the Institute for Energy Research for four years. Travis, thanks for coming on the show today. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we've seen over the past uh, about a week and a half or so, obviously millions of Californians have lost power in recent days because of uh, in the middle of a heat heat wave. Um, And state regulators are warning that there's possibly going to be more blackouts to come in the coming days and possibly the coming years. So California's ISOs received a lot of the early criticism for ordering the blackouts. But for the past several years, they've been warning about uh, inadequate power availability during the net peak times in the evening um, and have sort of warned that uh, something like this was going to happen. So before we get into discussing maybe the cause of the, these blackouts and things, you first want to jump in and just explain kind of how California's electricity market structured and what uh, the responsibilities of these different entities like the ISO and the California Public Utility Commission, how they all sort of operate in that space. Yeah, I think it's important to talk about what they don't do. So uh, in some constructs, the market itself is responsible for resource adequacy, which means essentially building enough power plants to, to meet peak load and, and some margin on top of that. Uh, and you see that in mandatory capacity constructs like the one they have at, at in PJM. The difference with KISO is the resource adequacy piece might not even be entirely clear who owns the ultimate responsibility for that. It's, it's, I believe it falls on the PUC the California Public Utility Commission, and it's supposed to be their job to, you know, approve new plants in a way that they can always meet forecast peak demand. And the problem there is the ISO, especially in, in, in the case of KISO, their hands are somewhat tied. They, they have a, a very short time horizon that, that they operate on. They pretty much clear the market in, in real time. They run a day-ahead market, and it's their job to basically calculate if, if there needs to be a if you go into sort of an emergency operation where you where you shed load and that's sort of the rolling blackout, it's their job to basically give a megawatt figure of we need to cut demand by X amount, and then they hand that down to the utilities to actually execute the cost. But that's all happening on a very short time horizon. The the planning horizon, all of that is is in the hands of the CPUC. So I would actually put the blame more there and not on Kaiso. Travis, can you explain for our listeners how interstate transfers of the electricity work? We know that sometimes California sends uh, its solar generated electricity to, to other states in the middle of the day when it doesn't need it. Why isn't it able to get electricity from nearby areas to meet peak demand um, in these circumstances we saw over the weekend? I think it does to, to some extent. I mean, when when they reach these emergency operations, I think they'll take what, whatever they can get. And 
it is occasionally imports. Um, I think the reason that that doesn't necessarily work all the time is, let's say the rest of the West plans their region around peak demand. Uh, if the peak demand everywhere is, is at the same time, then you just don't have any extra to share. Mm -hmm. That's okay. a little bit different when you get into this peak net load, which gets us into sort of the Kaiso duck curve stuff, where you might actually have other regions willing and able to help and sell power into Kaiso uh, in the evening. So, you know, we've seen peak demand shift from, I don't know exactly, 5 p.m., 6 p.m., and it keeps going later and later because of the large contribution when the sun's out of solar power. And then as the sun sets, there's, there's an incredible ramp that, that needs to take place within Kaiso. I think a lot of that ramp is actually supported by imports into Kaiso. Break that down a little bit more the, for, for listeners, the, the need to ramp up and the, the term duck curve? Yeah, so the, it was actually the, the Kaiso that came up with this. I think the first time I saw it was somewhere around 2011, 2012. Uh, so it's, it's a concept that, that's been around for a long time, but it's basically if you take the, if you're graphing load during the day, you know, you would start with sort of a, uh, a line that rises, peak would be 4 or 5 p.m. It, it tends to be, you know, when folks are, some folks are still at work, some are starting to come home. It also has a very strong tie to use of uh, air conditioning and, and, and sort of the, the cooling load. So it tends to be for when it's hot in, in, in the afternoon. So that's sort of the typical load pattern. Now that's just on the demand side. When you throw in the interesting curveball of adding solar on the supply side, you get this interesting net peak. So you, you have load minus the contribution from solar. And of course, we know exactly the shape that that follows. It peaks around noon and then starts falling off and falls off aggressively in the evening. So you have this confluence of falling solar production in the evening while demand is actually in some cases rising as solar is falling. So what that adds up to is you need everything else on the grid. So it tends to be, you know, fueled by uh, either gas or, or, or coal or hydro and that all, all the things that you're able to ramp tends to be in the evening in the West. Those have to ramp up incredibly to basically not just meet the load, but also make up for the solar that's falling off. Gotcha. Yeah. And in California right now, they have currently about 30% of their electricity is generated by renewable electricity, but they have a 60% mandate for 2030, and they're aiming to transition to 100% renewables by 2045. And what I've seen several people describe and what we're, we've discussed here is basically that these political mandates on um, the market are forcing uh, or creating basically unintended consequences in terms of uh, the system's ability to adapt to changes, especially extreme changes like a heat wave. And what's California's path out of this mess? Well, let's, let's do the thought experiment of what if California didn't have the politics that it does. I think the easy answer is build a gas plant, and that's probably what they should be doing. The interesting thing to me is if, if that's off the table, uh, and as a side note, you probably shouldn't close the new plant that you already have which they're doing. Um, so there's those two things, sort of the, why not keep the nukes running? Why not build new gas? And especially, you know, if you're only interested in, in a, a very few number of 
hours, you can build a simple cycle turbine, which is basically a, a you know a jet engine that you don't have to use that much, but it's there if you need it, and it's easy to turn on and ramp up and all of that stuff. So it's it's that kind of technology that that I would say, you know, if we weren't talking about California, that's the easy answer. I think because we are talking about California, it shifts the conversation to you know what kind of things can do that job, but are have a, a zero carbon footprint, and that's things like, um, and I, I'll note the zero carbon footprint at the point of production would be batteries or flywheels or all, all sorts of storage kind of comes in. I would expect they would be exploring new hydro as well, but I don't know what the possibilities are there. The, the politics of it is a very interesting constraint because otherwise you would say, let's just build a gas plant. Okay, so California has this zero emission from electricity mandate by 2045. How is that exactly enforced? Uh, we hear the term binding or non-binding tossed around sometimes with respect to, to these policies. What is, that, what is the mechanism by which that is uh, moved toward um, and adhered to? I'd have to check the text of, of the California statute. I, I think in general, it applies to the load serving entity. So the utility that you would pay your bill to, uh, the state would say all the power that you serve w would actually have to be zero carbon. So it, you, it tends to fall on the investor owned utilities and other load serving entities. But uh, it, in, in, in the case of California, I'm not entirely sure how it breaks down. Okay, so it, it, what we would suspect in this case is that the, the major utilities in California, PG&E, San Diego G&E, and uh, I believe SoCal Edison, they're each responsible for achieving that 60% by, by 2030 and then the, the 2045 number as well. It's not uh, just that the entire state needs to reach this average, that you, the utilities themselves within their territory need to. That's that's usually the case. I'm I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but it's also uh, you know it, it's not just the utilities sort of operating on their own. It's, I'm sure there's a, a ton of processes at the PUC to actually get their mm -hmm. each each utility's plans approved. Um. So the sources of electricity that you name there that could potentially fill uh, this gap reliably. You mentioned nuclear and uh, possibly hydropower, but battery storage. All these things are quite expensive, and um, from what I understand, California's electricity prices are already some of the highest in the country. So do those political constraints of zero emission generating sources, does that mean more pain uh, probably coming for energy consumers in the state of California? I think so, and that's, you know, it's an unfortunate fact, but I don't, I don't see any sort of sweeping uh, utility scale storage regime being being cheap. I mean, it's, the costs are falling, but the costs were incredibly high, and now we're we're starting to see sort of the the bundled sort of the the hybrid approach where you have, you know, on the same site there's a uh, solar plant and a battery, and it, if you combine the two, it actually turns into a somewhat reliable hybrid plant. So I would I would expect to see more of that because what you really need is the kind of thing that you can turn on and you can't do that with uh your your average solar plant it is what it is so you know that there isn't a whole lot you can you can do to, to change the output so i would expect storage and you know it's not incredibly cost effective at the moment in the organization that you work for elcon uh, you guys represent 
uh, electricity consumers, mostly uh, at the industrial level. But I think maybe a good place to end on is if you could talk a little bit about what the impact of blackouts and uh, the sort of uncertainty that comes with all this uh, in California, what impact does that have on consumers? It's important to note that the rolling blackouts that, that they implement are sort of on a tiered system. And the first people to be cut are your, your average homes. So you would first cut load to say a substation that only serves like a residential customer or you know a bunch of them. So in in aggregate, you would be able to save that power by not serving that load. People you don't cut are actually the you know you, you would start with the, with the top tier would be hospital and loads that are that serve the very vulnerable. Those those just don't get cut. But you also w wouldn't cut you know a, a wide variety of in, industrial load too. And it's kind of there, there's there's some irony baked into this that even though the goals in California are to get away from fossil fuels. They have acknowledged that the refineries in California are critical load. So they, they don't cut the power to that because, you know, they are, are the ones that, you know, make jet fuel and all, all the all, all the stuff that we actually need to run the economy. So it's the, the real pinch with blackouts is, you know, it, it hits people first. It, it, it doesn't really hit the industrials the same way. I think that's a good place to end on. Our guest today has been Travis Fisher. Travis, thank you again for joining us today. Of course, thank you.